Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Check, check, check. All right. Can you recite by heart the uh, public transportation route? It is the 733, which picks up at Lincoln and Venice and goes down Venice Boulevard, goes up Broadway and ends at Union Station to the new Gold Line, elevated track through much of the city, beautiful ride, drop off at Del Mar, Del Mar Station, catch the 687, I think for 14 stops, and it drops you... Right here on Los Robles. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> door-to-door service. Yeah. It'll take you a couple of hours or so. It, well, it takes two and a half, but I only have to walk about 100 yards. 50 yards to the first stop and then 50 yards from here. So That's incredible. Yeah. All right, we'll get some balloon uh, tone and then we'll go. Got my cocktail party mode sunglasses on. There you go. Just lean back from the mic for a second so we can get some silence. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that's that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello and welcome back to the Life After God podcast. My name is Ryan Bell. And I'm your host. I have a fun episode for you today. Uh, my conversation with Zeke Pystrip. I'll tell you a bit more about him in just a minute. But first of all, a few thank yous. Uh, you guys killed it last week with uh, Spreaker follows. I asked you to go to Spreaker.com slash Life After God and just click follow. And uh, to get us over 100, we were only just under 70 at that point. We're now over 112, 113, somewhere in that range. And uh, that puts us in a category now where we can start to apply for this podcast to be carried on iHeartRadio, which uh, has the potential to open us up to a much wider audience. There's certainly no guarantee that iHeartRadio will accept uh, this podcast, but we can start trying and see where we go. So if you haven't gone to uh, Spreaker yet and hit follow on the podcast. I would love it if you would do that. It's super easy. You'll just have to create a little account. You don't even have to use your real name on the account if you're worried about um, revealing your identity as someone who follows this heretical podcast. Uh, You can just uh, put up an alias, put in your email address, create a little account, and, uh, and, and you're set to go. And you'll get an email from us every time we upload a new show. Or if we go live on a live show, you'll get a notification that we're live. And that's pretty much it. 
but we have 50 new followers, so thank you so much to all of you who did that. It means, uh, it means a lot to me, and I think it'll have an effect on the future development of the show. If you haven't done it yet, go to Spreaker.com slash LifeAfterGod, and it will be fairly obvious what to do there. Um, also, uh, thank you for checking out the inaugural X-Files episode that we uh, posted on Friday with Tim Richardson. It was so much fun talking to Tim, and he was a, a veritable fountain of wisdom about his experience and uh, experiences that many people share in the process of losing faith or um, getting free of uh, superstitions or getting free of uh, worldviews and ideologies that just don't, didn't make sense anymore in his life. And uh, he was very courageous. It's not a simple thing uh, living in the South and with believing family. Uh, it took a lot of courage for Tim to share. So huge thanks to Tim. And thank you to the roughly 2,000 people who have already listened to the show. If you haven't yet, go back and hear episode 33, The X-Files with Tim Richardson. And I think you'll be uh, pleasantly surprised. It's only 30 minutes. My goal is to make these X-File episodes a bit shorter, uh, to make them a bit more consumable on an average drive to work or something, maybe while you're doing the dishes. And it'll be easy to, to pick up those episodes and listen to them in a shorter frame of time. Uh, we'll come back next week with another X-Files episode. And uh, this week we won't have one. So it gives you a chance, if you haven't heard the first one yet, to go back and check that out. I'll have some uh, more links in the show notes about where you can uh, follow up on all of these things, as well as uh, links related to my conversation with Zeke. Now, let's talk about Zeke for a second. Zeke is a documentary filmmaker. Uh, he is, has been a radio host on the very famous uh, local K-Rock uh, rock station here in Los Angeles. He's been a, a VJ on VH1. Uh, he's well known for making the documentary Downhill, the Bill Johnson story. But we're going to be talking about his most recent documentary called Apocalypse Later, Harold Camping versus the End of the World. Uh, Zeke came over to my house to record this. He lives in Venice, California. And uh, after a couple of uh, uh, efforts at getting together to record this show, he made it over to my place again. And we had a great time talking and getting to know each other better. So I hope you enjoy the show with him. Uh, for more about Life After God and how you can get involved in supporting the work that we're doing or benefiting from the work that we're doing, check out our website at lifeaftergod.org. Zeke Pystrip, welcome to the Life After God studio. I am honored to be here and to be talking to you, sir. Thank you. Thanks for being here. I'm honored to be talking to you. So it's a, a little mutual admiration society we have going here today. I've been following your work for the last couple of years, and I'm excited to be able to talk to you about it and share it with our listeners. Um, tell us, before we get into, because I want to get into your religious backstory, your personal story, and then we'll get back into your sort of your what work you've done, especially the film that we're going to talk about, about Harold Camping. Um, but, uh, just give us a little background of, you know, who you are, what you up to and, uh, why we're talking today. Who I am. Uh, well, let's see. I grew up in Big Bear, very religious town. Uh, my parents are atheist. So that probably set me on, uh, at least a path of, uh, oh boy, do I go to church with my friends or do I hang here and watch Sunday football? 
Uh, ended up watching more Sunday football through college. Went to USC, majored in journalism down here. Ended up in radio. I was a K-Rock DJ for many years. Really? You know, I wonder if it depresses the artists at all if, uh, you know, they start out having these great songs like that one from Kim Wilde, Kids in America. And then 10 years later, you're reduced to being one track on the new wave hits of the 80s, Volume 5. Hey, it's Zeke. It's the history of K-Rock A to Z. Here's Radiohead, Karma Police. It's the world-famous K-Rock. Fun way to spend your 20s. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And then later, uh, I actually you know, moved to New York and uh, television host. I was a VJ for VH1 for a moment. Mm-hmm. But all of these mediums, you have to do their content, right? Uh, the radio, you play a list in a row of songs. You don't choose the songs, right? Uh, when you're on TV, you talk about the subjects they want you to talk about. So slowly, I made the transition sort of uh, from being part of the content machine to creating my own content. That's awesome. And you moved back out here to LA at some point in that process? Well, I was only in New York for uh, about two years. Okay. Uh, Perfect timing for the planes crashing into the buildings. was hanging out there for that. Wow. Uh, But realized when I was living out there before the planes, uh, that I love California. <laughs> <laughs> you, you strike me as a California boy for sure. Yeah. I didn't know it until I went and, uh, went, wow, you know, that Cali place back there, that's a pretty cool spot. So, uh, I was happy to get back here and, uh, this is where hopefully I'll be a long time. Yeah. And you live down by the beach. So you do some surfing, I guess. I'm out in Venice beach. Uh, if anyone who listens to your fine podcast wants to uh, hang out, just uh, find me online, Zeke Pistrup, P I E S T R U P on Facebook. And yeah, anyone's welcome to come over, hang out. I'm definitely going to do that soon. Please do. Sir. I know I've been saying it for a while. You and Mr. Fibs are the, Oh yeah, let's do it. My most recent favorite people that I've met. That's that's awesome. Come on down to Venice. I got the extra bikes and uh, we could teach you how to surf. I would love to learn how to surf. I, you know, I grew up uh, in the Inland Empire and uh, frequently went to Newport Beach. That was sort of our, our beach. Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, grew up body surfing and boogie boarding, but never stood up on a, on a surfboard, never even tried. So I, I got the kind of the concept of how waves work and catching them a little bit. Um, so I'd love to give it a shot. Yeah, man. Change your life. I bet it, it would. will. So you uh, came across my radar a couple of years ago when I was starting out uh, my year without God in 2014, and you had fairly recently completed a film about Harold Camping. What is the subtitle again? Uh, it's Apocalypse Later, Harold Camping versus the End of the World. Oh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. And I don't know, um, you know, one of the reasons I'm excited to, to have you on the show is, of course, to get the story of that film and your insights about it, but also just to get the word out about it, because I, I have a feeling, and I could be totally wrong, but I have a feeling that a lot of people in the atheist community that I sort of stumbled into a couple of years ago may not have seen the film yet, and I don't, I don't know how true that is. or no, how- That's true. A tree fell in the forest, definitely. Uh, it's my first film that I was able to get into the machine, right? So it's distributed by Gravitas Ventures. Uh, but at the time of release 
releasing the film, I literally had zero dollars to my name. Wow. Know, not even enough to maybe toss a PR person, you know, something on my credit card, right? Uh, so I even had to do my own press releases. You know, I thought, oh, you get a film distributed and they, you know, spend all this money. And no, uh, if you're oh getting my. a theatrical release, that's different, right? Right. right. Uh, but they, they have a lot of films they're releasing and they're really just putting it into those distribution channels for you and then expect you to get the word out. But, uh, I wasn't so great at getting the word out, and I thank you for having me on the show because I am a PR team of one, and anytime we can blowtorch this film, I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. And we'll repeat this information at the end of the show as well uh, about where you can find the film, but but we may as well just, since we're talking about it, where, where can people locate it? Uh well, it had a VOD release, but that was uh, about a year ago. So now it's on like Amazon Prime, iTunes, uh, Google Play, YouTube, uh, okay. Vudu, a bunch of the digital uh, outlets. It was on Hulu, but it just ended its Hulu run about a week ago. Oh, okay. All right. So it's uh, you, you know four or five bucks, and you can just watch it and at your home, at your leisure, on your phone, whatever you whatever you want to do. Hey, easy. Yeah. So around, um, well, what year was it actually? We started seeing around Los Angeles, these billboards go up that Harold Camping had predicted the end of the world again. Yeah. Yeah. He's a bit of a serial predictor, but for whatever confluence of events, this one got really large. It did. Yeah. Maybe it was the new social media world because I remember... When I was first a pastor, 1994, I finished my undergraduate degree in uh, pastoral ministries, biblical studies at a tiny fundamentalist Bible college in the mountains outside of Sacramento and went to Pennsylvania, to the suburbs of Pennsylvania and uh, uh, suburbs of Philadelphia. <laughs> Pennsylvania is a state. Um, <laughs> I wasn't catching you. <laughs> hey, there's suburbs there. There's suburbs there. That's true. And uh, so, and I remember he published this gigantic book called 1994. Yeah. And he was on family radio, his his station, right? He, he founded that station. And he was talking about all this math calculations about how September something, 1994, was the day that Jesus was going to come back. And I, I remember that my church members, because he has this open call, he had this open call-in show. Open forum. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for calling and sharing. And shall we take our next call, please? Welcome to Open Forum. Wow. <laughs> the best awesome. show ever. It's like, uh, you know, it's like Vin Scully, you know? Yes. He's been on for so long, Harold was. The show was called Open Forum. And... 60 years, I think the the show, or 50 years, the show had wow. been on, which I did call Guinness Book, and it would have been an unofficial record. And I brought it up to Harold's attention that, hey, man, you could be the world record holder for longest daily uh, show, same male host. And uh, Daily? Yeah, he was worried about how he might be able to prove that. And this was seven days before the end of the world was going to come. So he wasn't super concerned about... <laughs> well, for a moment, he let to think like, yeah, wait, how do I get this recognition? And then he says, oh, it's all going to go up in smoke anyway. So forget it. <laughs> wow. So he, how many predictions of the end of the world did he make? Uh, well, let's see. There was a producer who worked there, Matt Tudor, who had been with Harold forever. Now, Matt had a 
bit of an axe to grind, perhaps, with Harold. He wasn't happy with this latest prediction. I'll just say that. Right. And he claimed at one time that Harold had made at least 20 predictions over the years. Wow. So I'm sure, you know, the truth falls somewhere in there. And again, yeah, Harold was a serial predictor. Uh, this time, you know, the 100 million that he spent on billboards, I'm sure, is one reason. 100 million. Yeah. One reason it got out. But, you know, again, I think. I went there not expecting it to be as big an event as it was. I was just a Herald fan, uh, even though I'm a non-believer. Let me get that out there. I'm a Herald fan in terms of uh, I've studied the origins of Christianity, uh, sort of the historical Jesus versus the Christ Jesus. And when I did that, I became less angry about Christianity and more interested in how it was expressing itself in our culture. Right. And he's definitely an interesting character. Yes. I mean, for a storyteller like yourself, like definitely an interesting story. Yeah. You know, you're not going to have to argue with him because you can't even argue with a fundamentalist anyway. Right. right. So it's not about, well, let me probe his views uh, so I can combat them. It was more just... Let me have fun and probe his views because personally, I'm not worried about, you know, an illiterate Jew from the first century coming back on the clouds of heaven. Right. Right. Let's just, I got a front row seat to this. At times, though, uh, I did have second thoughts in terms of the question, am I helping a cult leader hone his message? Mm -hmm. Because I got hired to do daily videos Family Radio hired my girlfriend, Bailey DeMast, who's an editor also. Uh, they hired us to do these daily countdown videos on YouTube. Now, I went to go do those videos knowing I wanted to make a film. Right. But that was the way to get my footage. Uh, and how did you land that gig? Well, uh, when I heard the end of the world was coming, I called up Family Radio and <laughs> said, hey, I want to uh, come interview Harold and do a film. Okay. Uh, about this event. I'm a documentary filmmaker. And I'd recently made a film on Bill Johnson, uh, Olympic skier, and it had gotten some good reviews. So instead of having to send a DVD or tell someone I'm a filmmaker, I could just send them, hey, look at this Hollywood Reporter review of Downhill, the Bill Johnson story. There right? you go. Yeah. I'm a filmmaker now. Uh, so they said, yeah, come on up. And then about a week later, they emailed me back and said, no, uh, we're not interested in this because what's the point? Right. Uh, the tsunamis will kill post-production. So I quickly kind of in my brain, okay, well, what's my new pitch here? And I, yeah, I came up with this idea of counting down the last days of a doomsday group. So it was really your idea that you pitched to them. Yeah. just And so I went up in mid-April and... Uh, demonstrated what I wanted to do. And where are they where where were they based? Uh Oakland. Oh yeah. 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 Uh Harold lives in Alameda, the stations in Oakland. Uh, so I basically yeah, so mid-April go up there, I shoot Harold for a couple hours, I edit all night, I send the edited piece to my music guy in Florida, I post it the next day by uh, noon about. Wow. So I said That's I want to do this every single day. We'll count down from 14 days. And they watched it. They loved it and paid us. Paid right. us to hang out during the, uh, you know, put us up in a nice, lovely place. Uh, still owe me one check, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I got my film out of it. Wow. That's incredible. And I, I remember seeing it and just being blown away. I, I remember thinking, I'm really not going to like this guy. 
you know, because I mean, what kind of lunatic continues to predict the end of the world repeatedly and is wrong repeatedly and continues, you know, as you alluded to a moment ago, is he, is he a cult leader? Is he just bilking people out of money? It seemed that he was. Is he? Could he possibly be sincere? So I went in really thinking this guy is not a good guy, and I guess we can discuss later if we think he's a good guy or not. Maybe that's not important, but um, well, I, I really you're... liked him. Yeah, cool. That's. I mean, to me, that's the reversal that I hope happens in the film. Is I think the general feeling of Harold is incredible dislike. I think people hate him. Right. I mean, I, I got to see while making the, the daily videos, the comment section on YouTube. Oh, wow. And most of these comments aren't coming from believers. You know, I think Harold embarrasses believers or they think he is ruining the faith. Right. Um, but for me, the people who are most responsible for all of this, for any Herald, and the reason we'll have a Herald again uh, is people don't want to talk about the root of this issue, uh, which is the furthering of the myth of the second coming. Everyone who furthers this myth that there will be Jesus returning and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth and all the way down to Revelation and all the trumpets blowing, those are the people responsible. Raul Reese, who is the biggest radio uh, evangelist here in Los Angeles, he can get on the radio and say, you know, ours is the last generation. We will witness the return of Christ. Uh, Billy Graham, you know, a newspaper in one hand, you know, and the Bible in the other, because these are the end times. So this excitement, Harold didn't cause that. Harold was a part of that. Right. And Harold did, I'm sure, ruin, well, I know he ruined some people's lives, but it's why do people always look at the specific date setter when these things happen and not the larger issue of perpetuating the second coming? I mean, one of the reasons this story is interesting to me and has been since I first learned of Harold in, in like I said, in 1994, which is like a crazy long time ago yeah. now, uh, is because the Seventh-day Adventist Church, of which I was a part and then a pastor for almost 20 years, has a history of date setting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, our you know, before there was officially Seventh-day Adventist, they were Millerites, as you know. And William Miller was nothing but a, I don't know, nothing but a, but he certainly wasn't a, a, a theologian. He was a, he was a farmer a from farmer. New England yeah. and started reading his Bible, which is never a safe thing to do <laughs> and without an education, without some help. Yeah. Um, you know, and so he decided after years, really, uh, three to four years of, you know, checking all of his calculations that Jesus was going to return to the earth in October of 1844. And then he nailed it down finally to October 22. And people abandoned their businesses and let their farms rot in the field and stood on Ascension Rock, which you can still visit today. So we had this history and uh, without too much irony, um, our... Uh, our, our, our people, you know, Seventh-day Adventist people even today refer to that as the great disappointment. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and what a disappointment it would have been to find out that you were wrong about all of that. And the church, the Seventh-day Adventist church is really born out of that disappointment and kind of learned its lesson and never really set a date again, but continues to this very day to insist that Jesus is coming back soon. And when you ask how soon is soon you get sort of these vague answers about, you know, God's time is not our time and stuff like that. So, but what you're saying is that all people 
that advance this idea of a second coming are complicit in a sense in the worst manifestation of it. Totally. And I don't think there's much different. I think you're parsing it out when you say, oh, well, someone's not choosing a day versus again, Raul Reese or anyone who's saying it's coming soon. Because I think it does change your political outlook. Uh, that would right. be the one question I would love asked to the Republican nominees, right? Do you expect Jesus to come back soon? Mm. And how would that affect your policy decisions? Right. Because it has in this country, there's a, a great book, uh, Timothy or Matthew Sutton, uh, American Apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And it's the first history at least recent history written on American evangelicals since George Marsden, who kind of wrote the Bible essentially on American evangelicals. Right. And he claims that this apocalyptic element that we're talking about was minimized by Marsden's script of how to understand evangelicals. And you can understand it because believers do not like to own up to this idea. Um, yeah. And, if you hold to this apocalyptic view, you could see how it would change uh, and how it manifests today in that people don't think that the government can help or that we should reform these institutions, right? These human institutions don't need reforming uh, because the end is coming soon. Right. And there's going to be a new heaven and a newer. So, you know, why bother with this one? And Jesus was uh, also an apocalypticist. And so it's not just contemporary religionists that are making this up. It's, it's really um, in the Bible, right? First of all, and in, and on more, and more importantly, it's in the words of Jesus that the end is coming. That's why I made my film. You know, I realize that even secular folk, idealize or celebritize Jesus, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. romanticize him. Uh, but if you take the gospels at face value, the first gospel written, Mark presents a Jesus who fully expects the end to come in the first century, right? Jesus was wrong about the time of the end, according to Mark's gospel, right? Right. right. Uh, now, of course, there are apologetic answers to all these failed prophecies, and that's what they are. When Jesus says in Mark 9, 1, some of you standing here won't taste death until you see the kingdom of God has come in power, right? It was a physical kingdom that right. they expected at that time. You mm -hmm. know? Jesus talks about people eating and drinking in the coming kingdom of God. He talks about people being thrown out of the coming kingdom of God. It's a physical place that's going to land here on earth. You can see in the development of the New Testament the fallout from that, right? So by the time you get to Luke's gospel, it says the Son of Man is not coming with signs to be observed. The kingdom of God is within you. You mm. spiritualize failed apocalyptic expectations, and that's what Harold did. May 21st rolled around. Big news conference. He's got a smile on his face because for him, it was about attention, not money, right? The guy owned the same seven suits for the last 20 years. Wow. So much so that even I'm a one camera shoot man, right? I could line up his suit on Tuesday with his suit on Sunday from different camera angles and make it look like a two camera shoot. Right? Wow. <laughs> he matched the same tie oh, and everything. Yeah, I mean, he wore the same outfit. His, the armchair in his home had duct tape replacing it. So this, this was not about money. 
But how Harold reacted to the failed prediction is exactly what we see uh, in the Bible itself. So again, you have a spiritualization of failed physical expectations and then a recalculation, mm. which is what the book of Daniel does. The oldest apocalypse we have, the book of Daniel, and it's the 1290 days and the 1335 days. Scholars have long said that, yeah, that was a recalculation after an unusual event, a prediction of the exact number of days. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, my, again, my denomination that I was a part of for a long, long time, uh, based a lot of its, uh, credibility on the prophecies of Daniel. And, uh, and they did the exact same thing. So when Jesus didn't come in 1844, um, after some, you know, weeping and gnashing of teeth, recalculation, they, they got back together and they said, uh, not only, uh, well, they, they tried to, what well, basically what the Adventist church did was they said the date was right, but the event was wrong. It was a spiritualization, as you said. Yeah. So instead of Jesus coming literally to the earth, um, to, uh, destroy the earth with fire and recreate it in, in a new, in a new way, uh, instead what was intended by that date was the, um, the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary where something mystical was going to happen in the heavens. And it would usher in a new age in the heavens in which God is reviewing the records of human lives and, and the, we called it the investigative judgment. It was sort of the pre-judgment, wow. sort of like the pre-trial hearing, <laughs> you know, like a pre-trial hearing. The investigative judgment. I or have or not like heard a, that one. Or, or like what in, in, in a court of law it would be like, um, what, do you, what is it called when the court's gathering, um, uh, evidence, uh, uh, pre-trial hearing. Yeah. Pre-trial there. hearing or, or like, um, ah, I can't think of the word, but it's, it's, yeah, it's essentially like you, your name. And I remember growing up feeling like my name could be called up in the heavens for a judgment at any moment. Wow. Even while I was alive. Wow. So and, that, and they were pro- doing roll call. Your cl- oh, so they yes. were doing roll call while we're down here. Yeah. yeah. And it could be even while I was still alive. It didn't necessarily have to be after I died. Probation could close. Like there could be this moment where God just draws a line in the sand, you know, just like. Well, that's what a lot of people who followed Harold now believe, right? So there's different groups that have uh, fractured off from Harold's movement. Uh, and they believe that no one is being saved, right? So, from now on. Yeah. So your babies. Sorry, mom. Yeah. <laughs> and that's exactly what Adventists did. They basically said, they called it the shut door theory. And the prof who, the woman who was later understood to be the Adventist prophet, actually espoused this shut door theory, which wow. was that, okay, Jesus didn't come physically to the earth in 1844, but the door is shut. And wow. nobody can can pass into um, salvation, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody that's saved is saved. Everybody that's lost is lost. And that's it. But then time continued to go on, and that it gets much more uncomfortable to hold that position, yeah. especially when people are like, but I want to join with you. And I love what you're saying, and I think you're lovely people, and I want to join your movement. And they're like, nope, sorry, you're going to burn in hell. (laughs) That's not a good uh, welcome sign. No, it's not. (laughs) So they eventually had to pull it back and say, well, we were wrong about that. They reopened the door of salvation. Wow. And and people, you know, apologists for Ellen White, the prophetess, uh, tried to minimize that episode because, again, it's an area in which she was wrong. And the prophetess can't be wrong. Yeah. 
Yeah, and Paul can't be wrong, right? Right. right. Uh, but Paul or Jesus, for even worse. Well, I've I've, I've learned that I'm, I'm going to leave Jesus over here, right? Because again, uh, people just Jesus is the biggest celebrity. But at least liberal Christians will admit that Paul got it wrong about the timing of the end. I mean, he tells people, don't even bother getting married. Right. First Corinthians seven eight. He says uh, in First Thessalonians, we we who are still alive will yep. be caught up together in the air with them, right? And so clearly Paul thought the end was coming in the first century. Jesus was baptized by an apocalypticist who was beheaded because of, you know, what is the apocalyptic message? It says, you Romans, your time is up, right? right? There's right. a new king coming. So they cut off his head. So Jesus was preceded by an apocalypticist. It would have been highly unlikely if he himself, he with a capital H, was not an apocalypticist, right? Right. Because he's followed by an apocalypticist. Right. So there would be some serious discontinuation if he was not. Even the sort of Jesus seminar people uh, who they claim that those sayings on Jesus's lips were written onto his lips after he died, right, right? right? But they're acknowledging that, hey, yes, if you read Mark's gospel here, it is clear that Jesus is making predict predictions that the end of the world is coming in the first century. They're acknowledging that, but they're trying to get around it. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, it's very, it's very difficult uh, once you start pressing into these questions to really parse out some useful or, or ethical through line to the story, which is why I've often said that um, people, thoughtful people, people who, you know, really prize truth and are interested in learning often uh, maintain their faith by just simply not looking into it. Yeah. Um, because when you, that's a dangerous thing to your faith to start looking into it. Because one question, it's a, it's a cascade. It's one question leads to another question, leads to three questions, leads to ten more questions, and and before you know it, you're you're really like we were talking before, splitting hairs. That when I I remember this moment when I finally stepped back and I said, if I weren't already predisposed to believe this story, would I bother splitting this hair? Right, like if I didn't already have a, a prior commitment to this narrative and to this group of people, I would not. I, you know, it reminds me again of one of my seminary professors who wrote an article once about a, a fairly arcane strain of Adventist theology. Right, and he wrote this article for a popular magazine intended to be understood by the masses, and he opens the article with a paragraph that essentially says, you know, after eight years of postdoctoral study at the Hebrew University in Israel. I've concluded that this doctrine is essential for everyone to understand for their for their salvation or whatever like mm. and I'm like it took you 8 years to parse it out in the original Hebrew in Israel <laughs> studying yeah. with the most accomplished Hebrew scholars and you're telling us that we have to understand this in order to really get it right yeah. it just it seemed like I didn't even read the rest of the article Couldn't I was like God make it easier right <laughs> If it's that important, it <laughs> yeah. can't be that convoluted, yeah. especially if it's not like, uh, like, in other words, I don't need to understand particle physics to live in the world. Like, I, I get that it exists. I believe, I believe that it, I mean, this is an interesting use of the word believe. Like, there are people who study that. I've read some of that literature, the popularized version of it. I don't claim to grasp it. My mind just sort of reaches its Event horizon, if I could use that <laughs> yeah, word. Yeah, good pun there. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and I feel like 
I, I don't, but I don't need, in other words, I can go on with my life and admit that I don't understand it and I'll be fine. But the, that's not the Christian claim. The Christian claim is you need to understand it. Like you need to grasp it and you need to believe in it, you know, a bit, a bit more than that. So I just, I, I don't, I don't know that, yeah, that really was a beginning of a, of a fracture for me. Yeah. These, you know, again, theology though is for the 1%. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It is, it is the work of making these puzzle pieces fit. Yeah, and it's a it is an elitist pursuit almost because you can't have uh, any sort of baseline discussion if there aren't agreed upon uh, an agreed upon foundation, right? And so when you're talking theology and you know salvation, uh, there's a million different ways because there's a million different viewpoints itself in the Bible. Right, right. right. Uh, even in the, when, in, the, in the 70s, when it was biblical theology was the big thing, right? We're mm-hmm. going to find that the Bible has one message. Right. Well, that failed because uh, there, there is, there's multiple messages, contradictory voices within the canon itself. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So tell me this. How does uh, a young man raised in the mountains of Southern California by two atheists come to have such a fascination about the Bible and religious people? History only became interesting to me through the lens of religion. And now that I'm on your podcast right here, I think I'm only going to be like three slots behind Bart Ehrman. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> two, yeah, two or three. Yeah, not even that much. So back in 2002, thereabouts, I got a DVD study course from my parents gifted to me uh, from the teaching company. Oh, yeah. Pick a course. So I picked uh, the New Testament, and this is and it was by Bart Ehrman. I didn't know right. who he was, right? This is before misquoting Jesus, and he became large. Uh, and I ordered one of his books because of that course called The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture. Oh, wow. And that book is a motherfucker. (laughs) It's amazing. Wow. And you're always told, you know, oh, 2,000 years ago, you know, we really can't know what happened way back then. Well, you know what? They have some pretty interesting ideas. And there is a large body of knowledge of things that we do, well, use the term no in a humble way. Right. Because history is about probabilities. But there's a lot that we've filled in, that scholars have filled in. Look, I say we all the time. I'm not a scholar. I'm a fanboy of scholars, but I guess it's like a sports team, right? I right. love academics. I love history. And so Ehrman was my entrance into this uh, area, which I've been addicted to for 10 years now. Just uh, um, Dale Allison, who is mm. at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary, mm-hmm. he wrote... Uh, the latest sort of version of the apocalyptic Jesus, but all this stuff, and Ehrman believes in apocalyptic Jesus also, but all this stuff goes back to Albert Schweitzer. So talking about, you know, uh, you were saying that, you know, if you question this, uh, it leads to more questions and more questions, but you know what? There have been these Christians who have been able to kind of be in that limbo. Right. Uh, cause the, I was for a long time too. Yeah. So is it a way station or can you intellectually honestly stay in that station and reside there right forever? Right. Cause even talking to Lauren Stukenbrook, who's a famous biblical scholar, he was ethically trying to show me that there are great messages behind this apocalyptic Jesus. 
Jesus, that we can take this apocalyptic Jesus character and have life lessons for today, right? Which I didn't understand. It took me a while. I had to watch the interview with him over and over. That was a tangent. But Dale Allison to Albert Schweitzer. Albert Schweitzer in 1906 wrote the first book on the apocalyptic Jesus. And it's been a hundred years later. And this idea that Jesus was wrong about the time of the end hasn't really gotten out there. That's right. I mean, it's been suppressed. It feels like, well, I guess, you know, even scholarship itself, I go to this thing every year called SBL, Mm -hmm. the society of biblical literature. You've been there, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, 95% Christian. Right. And these people are scholars first. I mean, it has its own sort of religious biases. Like of course. Hector Avalos wrote a great book called The End of Biblical Studies, which I just loaned you just to your loaned. library. Yes. Here it is right here in my hand. And talks about some of those biases. But these are Christians who people don't know. You know, they accept Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't write the Gospels. Right. But they still call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So even what they know does seem hidden, right? Right, right. They'll say in the Gospel of Mark. They won't say in the anonymously Greek-written, outside of Palestine, Gospel of Mark, right? Attributed to Mark. Yeah, attributed to Mark or or pseudo or whatever they want to call it. Yeah, they, they still call it by the same names. Uh, and what they know doesn't seem to be shared other than if you take a class from them. Right. right. Uh, well, my, my concern is too is, and I, I said this to Bart uh, Ehrman on the show a few days ago. Um, it's I, I'm fine with the idea that you could read the gospels and glean some life lessons from it. I mean, there's, to me, there's no question that if you read, um, this wisdom of Jesus attributed to Jesus uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, in Matthew five through seven, um, to um, to love those who who seek to injure you and to forgive them, um, and that you can kind of turn your enemies around by unexpectedly being kind to them. I mean, to me, this is a very interesting kind of maybe not true every time, but it's interesting wisdom that I think is worth pondering. My my thing is that it's not exclusive wisdom. It's not, in other words, no. it, it's not wisdom that you couldn't find elsewhere, and it's not uh, wisdom that, that that's not the only source of wisdom. So I I likened this to my recent reading of Marcus Aurelius when I was talking to Bart, and I said, you know, I'm reading Marcus Aurelius Meditations, and you know, I kind of went into it expecting it just to be like this volume of unassailable wisdom, and there's some things in there I'm just like, no, no. No, that's not, that's <laughs> yeah. not, that's not good. And, and, but I'm using my brain and I'm distilling good stuff from stuff I don't necessarily think is good. And I could debate that with another expert in Marcus Aurelius and he, he or she could really enlighten me about what I'm not understanding between the lines and all the rest. But there's some wisdom there that might be worth sharing with my children and their children and so forth, which is why I'm still reading Marcus Aurelius today and it didn't die out 10 years after he died. Plus he was famous. But, the point is that nobody ever taught me to believe in Marcus Aurelius or to accept Marcus Aurelius into my heart or to think <laughs> that it was divinely inspired yeah. words from, you know, the the universe somehow. And and so to me, I've always just read it as words. I can disagree with him if I want to. I can read Plato and think, wow, really ahead of his time, sharp thinker. Not my picture of the world necessarily, but what we've, what we've done with the Bible is we've taught people that this is a privileged book. It's above all other books. These stories, you have to get them from Jesus. 
You can't get this like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You can't get that from someplace else. That came from Jesus. We are free to choose new apostles, right? So for me, Lenny Bruce is my apostle. Bill Hicks is my apostle, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, we can take it from anywhere. But the real revelation you're talking about is that all this stuff that Jesus said, love your enemies and these things we think of as so special because they didn't happen before, uh-oh. And so this is, again, the filling in of history. They find that all these things have Near Eastern equivalents and happened before, right? right? As Lenny Bruce says, I did not grow up in a vacuum, right? Everything we have, we take from somewhere else and right. borrow and then spit it out in our own way. But yeah, these things did not originate with Jesus. And why should we have to appeal to any ancient text for modern authorization, right? Right. We are free to evolve. And who 2000 years ago could have had it figured out now? Right. Well, there's so life is different, Com more complicated in some ways, simpler in other ways, you know, presented with ethical conundrums that didn't even exist. I used to use this example with, you know, people like fundamentalists in my church would say, you know, everything you need to know is found in the Bible. It's the only book we ought to read. I actually had church members who thought the Bible was the only book that you really needed to read. And so I would throw them this kind of thing like, well, um, you know, what what is okay to watch on TV? Hmm. Or should you have a TV? Hmm. You know, yeah. what does the Bible say about television? Yeah, yeah. And they might go to the text that says, you know, Whatever, whatsoever things are pure, think on these things. But it, I would say, well, that isn't talking about television. To show me a text that tells you what to do with television. Yeah. You know, whether to have one, and if you do have one, what you should pay attention to and what you should not. And it's not there. You've got to use your head. You've got to reason about what is good, what is not good, or what is just neutral but maybe a waste of time, or whatever. I mean, there's all these categories that we could, you know, appropriate certain experiences into these categories. But... But certainly, it, it is seem ludicrous to me now that, that I would have ever and that people at all think that all the wisdom is found in the Bible. It grew out of a slave-slave-master hierarchy. So even Jesus says, you know, a slave is not or a servant is not greater than his master. Right. Right. And so Islam, Judaism, I mean, Islam means to submit. Right. So these... Uh, Books come out of an era where our brains just weren't thinking all that well yet, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that's happening now. And in 2000 years, I hope, you know, they don't take any of our words with any sort of weight, right? You know, evolve, <laughs> right? Move past it, take what's good, build upon it. I mean, I find this is so true, you know, um, you were talking about the way that historians piece together probabilities based on little fragments of information. And it suddenly, and I don't know, paleontologists will no, no doubt write to me in, in a minute and, <laughs> and tell me that I'm wrong about this. But, but I, it always reminds me of that, um, that first time that I was in the Natural History Museum that I, I was looking at this Tyrannosaurus Rex, right? And first of all, it's molded plastic based on bones that are hidden well away so that nobody can hurt them, right? But even if they were the actual bones, you can see, and, and other other types of uh, reconstructions of ancient animals, you can see the bone, and then you see sort of the epoxy that's filling in this gap where they don't have the bone. Because, I mean, nobody's going to find a, an, an, an intact, 
you know, down at the big five. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Down at the big five. Exactly. So, so, um, you know, so what are scientists doing? They're taking this piece and this piece and they're, and they're like through what they know from all of these different sources, they're piecing together these fragments into a, a, you know, a hypothesis, a pretty good one, uh, based on what this animal must have looked like, but it's not one whole skeleton. And I remember the first time I thought, well, they don't have a skeleton of this animal. And I'm like, well, it's, and then I realized they sort of do. Yeah. Enough. Yeah, yeah. They have enough to know, you know, and, and, uh, and I think this is one of the interesting things about any kind of historical research about Jesus or anyone else. Um, that you're trying to reconstruct all this stuff. And the more you do that work, the more human it all becomes, the more um, less out in the realm of the supernatural and the more in the realm of just human history. Yes, but as Schweitzer pointed out in his book, and to this day, uh, anytime there's sort of a historical Jesus study, it usually ends up mirroring the values and the life of the writer himself. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, it's just, uh, you can't get that close to people 2,000 years ago. The world was just so different. Right. Um, and I just wanted to make this distinction because to, to, to bring it back. So there's the historical Jesus which is the name for this free inquiry, uh, you know, taking in all the different sciences. What can we know about this Jesus cat? But then over here, you know, there's the Christ Jesus, right? right? So the Christ of faith. Yeah. So I make sure when I talk to people about this, I usually say, well, I'm going to talk about the historical Jesus, right? right? Which again is open to free inquiry. And when you build that dinosaur, Right. I mean, to me, the most logical answer, or at least the best answer of who the historical Jesus was, is that he was a Jewish apocalypticist, which right. means, you know, a lot of things. But again, one of them was that he thought the end was coming in the first century. Yeah. Have you spent much time, and I, I asked Bart this too, and I, I honestly, um, and for my listeners who will take issue with me at times, I, I, I honestly haven't done that much research into um, the arguments of the mythicists. I have a couple of books that I definitely need to get to, namely uh, my friend Richard Carrier's book uh, about the historical Jesus. Uh, have you spent much time with that literature, and, and what, do you, what do you make of these claims that there was actually no, like when you try to reconstruct that dinosaur, there's actually nothing there? Well, I think the mythicists are actually kind of right in a sense that uh, I do think there was probably a Jesus who lived. Right. But again, Josephus writes one paragraph on him, whereas he writes an entire page of John the Baptist. Right. And even the paragraph has been redacted and added to. Um, so Jesus was a bit player. And so if you take a little pebble and then you add layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of myth and story and, you know, reverence, right? These people have reverence. They want to prove something about this person. They add another story. So is that pebble underneath all those layers of myth, uh, does that make Jesus a historical figure when most of it is not? Historical? Right, yeah. You know? So it's almost like they're asking the wrong question. It's It's what do... I mean, because Bart definitely reacted strongly against that. You know, right, he was right. trying to call the mythicist stupid and, right. and, and it didn't seem uh, very <laughs> academic of him. So you touch a nerve on that spot still. I don't know why there's such anger between these two camps. I think I think you're right, though. I think they're not far apart, um, but I think they're, it's, it's threatening because 
there's hyperbole going both directions. I think what happens is the mythicists make strong, possibly hyperbolic claims about the non-existence of Jesus that would sort of go to uh, you know Avalos's view and even Bart's view, which is that. Um, well, I don't, I don't know actually what Bart's view on this is, but that the purpose of biblical studies is to undermine biblical studies or to bring it to a close as a proper discipline that's meant to sort of elucidate some truth or whatever. Um, the truth that it's trying to elucidate is the fictional nature of, or, or the mythological nature of, of the whole enterprise. So I think there is, a, there is a, it touches a nerve with people like Bart because he's committed his whole life to doing this. Yeah. Remember, though, biblical studies was started by believers. That's right. right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, these people. And so the one really interesting aspect of biblical studies, I think, is that it has moved away from trying to prove the historicity, right? So when it started around the turn of the 20th century, it was trying to show that everything in the Old Testament, you know, happened as it said it did, right? um, that these events are historical. That Jesus fulfilled things in the New Testament that are predicted in the Old Testament and that it all ties together. Yeah. Well, that has now, 100 years later, completely fallen apart. Right, right. right. And so now... Now, the argument has moved to the ethics, right? Right. Not that, uh, so for example, the Canaanite genocide, right? Right. Oh, that didn't, we know it didn't historically happen. Uh, So, you know, to try to, now it's moved to, well, is it ethical ethical that, you know, God recommends in the (laughs) Old Testament the killing of women and children, right? So the the battleground has moved um, and... Yes, in the beginning, it was mainly Christians trying to prove that their religion, because, you know, there are a lot of historical claims about Christianity, you know, that God intervenes in history. And so it was important to prove these historical events actually happen. But now they've lost that battle, unless you're, uh, you know, a fundamentalist evangelical, you can just continue to believe that these events happen. But the Christians who are at SBL and these types of liberal Christians who can have a little bit of freedom of thought in their head, uh, yeah, it's moved again to the ethics of the, of the Bible. Right. I want to ask you, um, based on your experience with um, Harold and his followers and the folks that you interacted with at Family Radio, um, and you know, it, it always puzzles me that fundamentalism is as tenacious as it is, that it sticks around. You know, in the, in the 70s, there were these predictions that, um, you know, religion had encountered its final, you know, battle with science and reason, and that over time religion and spirituality would erode and give way to reason and and logic and and science would become uh, usher in kind of a new age of of a new enlightenment mm-hmm. and instead what we've seen is a retrenching of fundamentalism um a polarization in the world between truly peace loving progressive believers who don't like you say believe that the things of the bible actually happen but try to distill some ethical lessons from it all the way to isis you know who you know, who could have predicted, um, and probably some people did, but, you know, 30, 40 years ago that we would be in this situation in which religious fundamentalism is one of the major geopolitical factors. And, 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 and to take it down a notch now from ISIS to back to Harold <laughs> Camping, like what were these folks? That was sort of a long way of getting around to asking you, were they, are they, tr- I imagine they are true believers and and how do they maintain t- in touch with 
uh, reality and, and yet hold these, these views in the 21st century. I mean, I can sort of understand how it would happen in the 19th century, in the 20th century a little bit, but now it just seems there's so much information available to everyone. Yeah, but people are looking for someone to discern that information for them, right? As always. And, you know, uh, I could give an example of, of one family radio listener, big Herald fan, and he would start every sentence with, well, I'm not that smart. But, yeah. Right. And his name was Lance. You know, he was a caretaker out in Florida. Hmm. Um, you know, just you can trust Harold. Harold is a trustable guy. You know, he's got that soothing baritone. And, right. And you, if you're told, again, so at what point is, is Harold Camping culpable or at what point is Sola Scripture culpable? Right. right? The idea that anyone can pick up and read the Bible, but it doesn't follow that anyone can understand the Bible, right? So we've taken the Bible, Protestants, and put it in people's hands and said, you know, hey, this book, spend your time with it. And, you know, so if you have, it's obviously very confusing, right? And we need people like you back in your day to right. parse it out for us, right? right? Or we need Harold Camping to do it. And there are as many versions of that as people looking for something to believe in, you know? Yeah. I mean, Bart in his most recent book makes this point in the introduction where he talks about, you know, several books that came out about Jesus recently, like Reza Aslan's Zealot, mm -hmm. very different picture of Jesus than Bill O'Reilly's Jesus, you know, yeah. who is, you know, I, I love it, just, you know, protesting taxation, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How interesting that Bill O'Reilly would come up with that Jesus. I don't understand where yep. he... The same today uh, as yesterday, right? They say about Jesus, <laughs> right, right? right? Yeah. But Jesus is always morphing. I love Tanya Lerman's book, uh, When God Talks Back, right. which is about the vineyard movement, you know, that taught people uh, essentially to, you know, talk to Jesus in your head back and forth, right? right? Not, a, not a sending of prayer, but Jesus cares about, do you wear the blue dress or the red dress, right? right. Uh, this running conversation, setting a dinner table setting for Jesus, they taught people to do this. So how are you going to combat that? I mean, I even saw the sign on the Evangelical Lutheran Church in my neighborhood in Venice that said, cast all your anxieties upon him. So take that manic voice in your head that we all have right. and just turn it into a running conversation with Jesus. I don't know what the long-term uh, mental health outlook of that activity is, but I don't think it's that good for you to right. encourage that manic voice, even right. if you assign it Jesus's you know, presence. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, again, this hyperbolic claim that religion is like a mental illness, but when you... Start getting down to that level where people are having this conversation with a voice in their head. I agree with you. I think that the long-term psychological effect of that or, or the way in which real mental illness could go untreated under, under the guise of that kind of relationship with God could be uh, pretty risky. I don't think it's going to make you less anxious. I mean, if that's the idea, right? right? Cast all your anxiety upon him, talk to him, and now I have less anxiety? I don't know. Yeah. Do, do downward dog, you know, maybe a little horse's breath. I do that about a thousand times a day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> let it out. Just yeah. let it out. Yeah, man. Oh, man. Yeah. I, I think there, you know, there are some real, real dangers there. And I guess, I mean, Harold, um, Harold passed away 
Yeah. Shortly after. He had a, a little bit of a stroke, uh, a minor stroke, they say. And then I interview him, you know, a year after the failed prediction. So that is in the film where he essentially repents and does a total 180, which thank you, Harold. You know, I mean, it's perfect for making a film. Stagnation is the death of documentary. A guy does a 180. You're like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I got my ending. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, he died in 2013. And it was weird. My film played up in an art house in the Mission District uh, up in San Francisco the night before he passed. It's really bizarre. Next day, he died. And I was up, you know, showing wow. the film to... Uh, some kind folk on the in the mission district, yeah. And were and were was the media paying attention to his death? I don't remember. Was there a big thing about it? And it came out, uh, you know, it was uh, everyone kind of wrote about it, and some were again meaner than others, right? Uh, but I mean, people are genuinely hurt, and so I, I certainly couldn't blame people for being angry and writing angry things about the way that his teaching. But can uh, I ask you this? Their life? Don't you think, though, that this, that Harold Camping, the phenomenon, is just going to continue ad infinitum until we, as people, come to terms with how far back this goes? Yeah. No, I, I agree. And I think it's, um, you know, I want to be, and on this show, I try to be as generous as possible um, to to religious people, not religion so much, but to religious people. Because I know that people hold on to beliefs for a range of reasons. Mostly, they are not reasons of of reason and logic, <laughs> right? They're not, you know, most of the time, outside of your professional apologists, you're not encountering people that are saying to you, you know, my emotions totally aside, I've evaluated all the claims of the Bible <laughs> and determined that they are all true. Yeah. And that is why I'm a, Christ a Christian. Yeah. It's not, that's just not how it goes. People, and, and, and I was one of those too. And that's, I mean, one of, I have anecdotal evidence, you know, for that in my own life. So I think people hold on to their faith for a lot of reasons. Uh, one, one major one is not disappointing their family, yeah, that's big. Um, not losing their community yeah, and their community. friendships, their yep. marriages, their kids. Um, these are all serious issues. And I mean, I certainly wouldn't advise someone throwing away their marriage uh, unless they really came to the point that they themselves made that decision that that was worth it for them. Like I, the only, only an individual can, can, make that decision. So, I, you know, I try to be as generous as I possibly can. And yet there are real risks and real um, societal system wide consequences for, for this kind of belief system or the surrendering of one's reason um, to faith and things that can't be demonstrated. And uh, it is dangerous. And I think we do need to speak um, dispassionately as possible, clearly, compassionately about the risks and the dangers. And I think what you do by saying, um, you know, Harold Camping is a perpetrator, but also a victim uh, of this much larger thing, right? Just the same way that, you know, Joe Blow politician is, you know, could be a horrible, awful, per like, you know, Donald Trump, for example, well, maybe that's a bad example because he probably is the cause of everything. <laughs> the Antichrist. If, yeah. if there is one. Right. And he's got the evangelicals following. Yeah, like, right. Fish hook in their cheek, man. But, uh, but you know, somebody like um, even George W. Bush, like, you know, he, he's just – he was a powerful guy for a while. He had some really bad ideas, I think. 
and but he's also a cog in a wheel. He's a big cog compared to me and you, but but still there's these system wide um like if you think that for example and I don't I'm not necessarily endorsing this viewpoint, but if you think that the balance of power between Israel and Palestine is unequal and should be fixed in some way. You certainly can't run for president and say so. Yeah. I mean, you're just a cog in that wheel. That yeah. that wheel is much bigger than than you are and has been there a lot longer than you've been around and will be there after you're gone. So I, I do think that this this it isn't incumbent upon us to continue to chip away at the veracity of these beliefs that keep this kind of dangerous thing going. But you're right to start it on, on a personal level, because I do like to read about these things and study it from, you know, a godlike distance, right? I mean, I was just the tourist of the holy hanging out with these end of the world folk. Right. But the human fallout, you know, and, and again, why I have been uh, addicted to hearing uh, your story and looking forward to your film uh, is because, yeah, for me, it was easy. I didn't I'm not letting anybody down. I'm not. I'm not giving up my job and what I studied for right. like you did and, right. and all these friends um, for me. It's just, yeah, it's more studying where does this uh, phenomenon come from and how did Harold fit within, within that? Yeah. Do you want to say anything about what you're working on next? We don't have to, but if you... Well, my next film will be about the Bible. So I have been shooting for a couple years now. If there are any uh, leprechauns out there, leprechauns are people who fund films. Ah, uh, yes. That's what I call them. I have never caught one myself, but I know they exist because uh, I work for them often for other people. Right? They're like, they're like the, the Oz behind the curtain. Yes. The wizard. They're not really worried about return on investment on a documentary, so they're usually billionaires. Right. And they're activists. And uh, so if they want to do something uh, on the Bible from a secular perspective, uh, because, yeah, we talk about these things, as you say, as dispassionately as possible, right? Uh, but we need to make aware of how these issues come to the larger whole. And Israel-Palestine is a great example to bring up because, you know, evangelicals love Israel, right? Because right. what's that end time script? You know, uh, Israel's the landing spot for Jesus. Right. And they're using people. I mean, this is the thing about Christian Zionists as distinct from Zionist yeah. Zionists. You know, this idea of being a Christian Zionist is, is nothing more than using not just people, but an entire culture yeah. and, a, and a people for your apocalyptic vision. It's just... I, yeah, the anti-Judaism uh, uh, that's even attached to it, uh, you know? It's, it's like revolting. Yeah, I mean, you watch Passion of the Christ, mm. and the Jews are just the worst people ever in that, right? right? right. I mean, because, you know, what does it say in Matthew's Gospel when Jesus is being marched up to his death? The, it says, the Jews, or the elders said, let his blood be on us and our children, right? right. <laughs> Through time. So when we have people like Mel Gibson... I mean, Mel's just following through. Following through on Matthew's vision. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these are the or people when, who killed God. Martin Luther, the, the father of the Protestant Reformation, was the, yeah. one of the biggest anti-Semites of his time. Yeah, he wrote a book on, uh, on the Jews and their lies. Yeah. And there's an implementation in that book where yep. Luther recommends burning synagogues. Final solution. Do we? And we have Luther. Luther's like still a hero to people, oh, right? There's a whole denomination named after yes. him that, you know, and... How did he get away with that? I mean, he, he advised burning synagogues, but he's okay? He's okay, because he brought us, you know, the Protestant Reformation, saved by grace. 
Okay. You know, like this Alabama governor who was caught having an affair this week. Uh, I missed him. The news came out. But uh, as my friend Hemet Mehta put it this morning on his blog, Jesus forgave him, so it's all good. <laughs> yeah, right? That's a permanent get-out-of-jail-free card that you just get to cash in over and you over You can kind of see you know? why psychically people gravitate to that kind of worldview sometimes. When the uh, Ashley Madison thing broke open and all those names were leaked, you know, oh, there yeah. were some popular Christian personalities. Duggar. That, yeah, Duggar, but this other vlogger who... Uh, who you know, always pontificates about the family and homosexuals and all this stuff. And he and his wife appear in this episode where he's just con- contrite and his wife forgives him. And oh, wow. Keep watching the videos, folks. Keep watching the videos. <laughs> Serious business, man. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope uh, all of you will go and find uh, Zeke's film. Apocalypse Later, Harold Camping versus the End of the World. Available wherever you find your um, streaming video online. Um, I'm sure that if you just go to the website, do you have a website for it up there still? Apocalypse. Well, just uh, find me either on Twitter, okay, uh, at Harold underscore Camping, okay, or uh, on Facebook. There's a Facebook page for it for it as well. So as you do in this interconnected social media world, you start clicking on things, you will find it. Bart- I'll put the link to it in the show notes as well. Bart Ehrman is my main scholar, along with John Collins, who's at Yale Divinity. He is the Yoda of apocalypticism. He wrote the definition of apocalypse wow. back in the 70s that scholars now quote themselves, right? Academia has its own scripture. Right. So exactly. I got the top dudes in my film. I even have the president of Westminster to represent the fundamentalist side. Westminster, of course, started by Machen back in the Princeton split. Yeah. I used to go and study in the library there in Philadelphia. Oh, wow. Because uh, they had all the commentaries, which are like 80 bucks a piece, the Bible commentaries. And there's volumes and volumes of different, you know, different publishers have different volumes and uh, going back centuries and uh, they have them all. So I would go there and do sermon prep there. And, and look where you are now. And I think it is important to acknowledge that you, my friend, stood on the right side of history right? I mean, that was the end of your job was realizing that, wait a minute, LGBT people are people. Are people. That's the basic truth, right? That's the simple basic truth that finally, you know, started that slow erosion. You were definitely a big part of that. And and you should be commended uh, for your stance because uh, right side of history, my friend. Yeah. Sometimes it feels like people are, are commended for just doing like the basic human thing you know like Like hitting like on facebook right yeah (laughs) or just like acknowledging that that gay people are people like i get a cookie for that somehow like i don't i don't feel like you know that that should be just that's why you know fundamentalism is so bizarre in our world because you should you actually get a cookie for acknowledging that gay people are are people yeah tolerance is kind of messed up in itself you should love them yeah, yeah, it's just crazy. Well, if we if we go down that rabbit trail, yeah. it'll be another blah, hour. Blah, blah, blah. Just thank wanted you. to make sure I acknowledged your awesomeness. Well, thank you so much, Zeke, and thanks for um, making the trip over here to hang out in this uh, luxurious studio. Hope the green room was, was fine. It was lovely. The, uh, the entire craft spread was incredible. Thank That's you. all. You're welcome. You're welcome. Anytime, anytime. We'll hang out again soon. Well, that's Zeke Pystrick. Fun guy. Uh, just super laid back and wonderful to talk to. Super smart about uh, biblical studies and theology and 
the Jesus Seminar. Uh, for someone who doesn't have a professional uh, background or academic career in biblical studies and uh, theology and history, um, he's really got a solid grasp on the issues um, at stake. And, and I especially appreciate his uh, perspective on apocalyptic religion. We sometimes talk about fundamentalism, and apocalypticism is sometimes, uh, most often, a feature of uh, fundamentalism. But I think to talk about apocalypticism puts a slightly finer point on the issues at stake, especially around um, evangelical and fundamentalist Christianity's avoidance of uh, issues related to climate change and, and social justice and other issues that seem to get pushed to the back in the minds of contemporary Christians of a more conservative bent because they have this vision of a new world that God is going to usher in and take care of all those problems for us in, uh, in the next world. In fact, I was just uh, writing something this week um, and, and uh, talked a little bit about how um, catastrophe and disaster and poverty and suffering is actually for the apocalyptic Christian a sign of uh, the nearness of Jesus coming. And so in that weird, twisted sort of sense, it's actually good news. The more we see the signs of the end, the more we see uh, earthquakes and famine and suffering and war, uh, the more we know that Jesus is about to come. And so from my apocalyptic background uh, in Seventh-day Adventism, these things became evidences of the end of time and therefore good news, uh, good news that the kingdom was about to come. And it, it's just from this perspective now, having put all that behind me a few years ago, uh, it just seems so um, downright um, corrupt to, to think of uh, suffering and evil in this uh, weirdly positive way. Uh, so I appreciate everything that Zeke's doing. His next project is going to dig deeper into issues around the Bible. If you haven't seen the film yet, please go uh, to uh, one of the online platforms that I will uh, link in the show notes, either Google Play or Amazon or iTunes, wherever you can find uh, Zeke's movie and, and give it a listen, uh, give it a watch, because I think it's um, really well done. There's a lot of great commentary in there from uh, biblical scholars and experts in the field, as well as really entertaining footage of, of, uh, of Harold. So uh, check it out, Apocalypse Later, Harold Camping versus The End of the World. Well, thank you so much for spending this part of your day with me. Um, thanks so much for tuning into the show. To learn more about Life After God, you can go to our website at lifeaftergod.org. All of our social media links are linked up there on the website. You can easily find them and follow us on social media. Brian Peck is always posting really interesting stuff on the Facebook page. So that's especially something you might want to check out, facebook.com slash ourlifeaftergod. If you're interested in joining our private uh, Facebook group, which is really for people that are going through the actual experience of losing their faith and the trauma that's associated with that. It's We, we carefully curate that room. Um, drop me a line at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. Or for any other comment or suggestion or feedback that you have for me, feel free to write to me anytime at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. As always, I'm your host, Ryan Bell, and this has been Life After God.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.